name's Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get violent. We're going to do martial arts. And we're going to street fight, because we're talking about Sonny Chiba. If you've got to podcast, podcast dirty. Listen, when I was a teenager and I was getting really into martial arts movies, of course I loved Bruce Lee. And not just the movies, but especially his interviews. You know, I loved hearing him go on and on about kung fu as the art of expressing the human body and hearing his philosophy of jeet kune do the way that a fighter should be like water my friend but then there was another guy a guy that you would often find if you haunted the walmart bargain bins a guy for whom the martial arts was about hurting people well at least in the perception that we got in north america of his characters that became very popular shinichi sanichiba has had a very long career that continues to this day started in the early 1960s has encompassed many genres but for the martial arts film aficionado it really comes down to one movie and that is the street fighter and that is i would say the ultimate grindhouse film and me like i feel a lot of people heard about chiba for the first time in a little movie called true romance written by quentin tarantino that's interesting because i think i saw that after another Tarantino affiliated movie affiliated he directed it <laughs> called Kill Bill Volume 1 in which Sonny Chiba makes a cameo and I also remember seeing like a really shitty bargain bin documentary about Bruce Lee that had a section about Bruce Lee imitators there was footage from a trailer for a movie called The Bodyguard where it had this memorable refrain Viva Chiba that Viva so Chiba <laughs> much better than the movie yes I would agree with that and the narrator said that Sonny Chiba from Japan was pitched as another possible successor but anyway uh sunny chiba was in kill bill as hattori hanzo the mm -hmm. sword maker and as with everything in that movie there's a whole like lore behind it you know he played a, a earlier generation of hattori hanzo on japanese tv and i should let the listener know if you hear me say sony chiba it's because i've never had to say it out loud to anyone before and i should know that that name is not even one that he picked for himself so his official name is shinichi chiba but that's not his birth name, is it? He has some other birth name. Yeah, he has another name, and he adopted that one, I believe, when he went into movies. But it could have been before then as well, because Chiba was someone that he did a bunch of stuff before he became an actor, including training for the Olympics. And the story goes that he hurt his back, and he was unable to join the team because of that. So in the early 1960s, 1960 in fact, he was discovered by a talent scout at Japan's great toy studios. And talent scouts in like big contests is how a lot of actors get discovered in Japan. That's how Toshiro Mifune also got discovered. So throughout the 60s, Sonny Chiba appeared in many, many films. Some of the most recognizable ones include the MST3K classic Invasion of the Neptune Men. Yes, that was early on in his career where, you know, I probably mentioned it many times in this podcast, but Chiba was 100% a studio man. Like he would show up to work, whatever job they gave him, he's like, all right, I'm going to do the best job that I can at this. But it's not like he had that much creative control over the pictures that he made. You know, like Hong Kong, you had the Shaw Brothers. In Japan, you had all those studios. And past the point where Hollywood had the studio system where a star was like locked into a contract all these Asian countries were still doing it that way. He made movies with Kenji Fukasaku as well one of the great Japanese studio directors. I believe the first starring role that Sonny was in was a Kinji Fukusaku film when they were both coming up through the industry. And later on, much later on to the 80s, they continued to work together. Fukusaku, for those who don't know, is most famous for having directed Battle Royale, which is 
one of his very last movies and really feels like the film of a young man, but it was made by a very old man. But Sonny Chiba studied the martial arts. He studied karate. His career and his career in action movies, too, started well before Bruce Lee became a superstar, but it exploded after Bruce Lee's death. Supposedly, Chiba and Bruce Lee even discussed making a film together. Uh, who knows how serious those conversations were? You can only say, oh, yeah, if that's what you say, Sonny, <laughs> if yeah. that's what you say. But in the United States and around the world, Chiba in the 1970s was marketed as a successor to the throne vacated by Bruce Lee. But you know how Bruce Lee, like Will was saying earlier in the podcast, was all about, like, you know, the philosophy of martial arts, what it means. The American distributor of the Street Fighter decided to sell Chiba as the dirtiest fighter there is, and the film backed it up. It also had one of the greatest martial arts posters ever with a giant muscular, I'm going to say Sonny Chiba, even though it's kind of like generic Asian person on the cover, just like punching like a guy right in the face as like a woman, her shirt being ripped off is running in the background with a big yellow background. And it has that great tagline, if you've got to fight, fight dirty. And it was the first movie that in the United States earned an X rating only for violence. And then I think later New Line Cinema, which released it, uh, cut it down to an R rating in a version that's like 75 minutes. Can you imagine watching that film? <laughs> 15 minutes was cut out of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's insane. Um, so if you look at The Street Fighter, it's obviously a movie that's made under the influence of Bruce Lee. And the two men, despite key differences, do have quite a bit in common. They're both shameless showboats on the screen. It's all about them when they're on screen. <laughs> they each have their own distinct repertoire of weird noises and facial expressions. I mean, so Bruce Lee is making like the wah sounds and Sony Chiva is him going... Which is so odd when I saw it because you don't see any other, you know, heroic figure do that. But man... Chiba commits when he's on screen and he does that stuff. He looks like he's in physical pain whenever <laughs> yeah. he's doing a move. He looks like he's like scanning when he's doing like, like every muscle in his body is contorting before he just jumps into his kicks. And with both men, Bruce Lee and Sonny Chiba, their fight scenes are both obviously very well choreographed, but it's not about fancy choreography. Uh, they're not acrobat. Well, I would say that Chiba's probably fancier than Bruce Lee, that the bodies are moving much more, you know, uh, all over the place and that the fights go on a little bit longer than Bruce Lee's like I'm the hero I punch somebody they go down that's it that's how a real fight would go yeah well Bruce Lee's whole idea is hey listen I'm the best like obviously and, and also Bruce Lee as a martial arts philosopher believed in doing the least amount of moves to get the guy down and I think that Chiba is more of an entertainer in that way especially as he continued to make movies and he choreographed most of them through his Japan Action Club which I should point out, while having an amazing name, it was actually more of a collection of actors at the beginning. Action not being like fighting, but action as in what a director would call. So The Street Fighter came out in 1974. I'm going to describe its plot. Sonny Chiba plays a mercenary. The film opens with him visiting a man on death row, literally a man being taken to the noose. And uh, on his way, Sonny Chiba administers to him, he's, he's disguised as a priest, he administers to him a particular blow that knocks him out. It's a delayed reaction, though. It's like the guy goes up to the noose, but then he collapses. And then when he's being taken out of the room, like they whisk him away, they, they take him away. And Sonny Chiba's been paid by the guy's family to get him off death row. Well, he hasn't technically been paid by his family, because when Chiba goes to get payment... 
this is not a good guy or a heroic figure, if you will. Yeah. So, folks, this is, you know, this is some ugly stuff I'm going to tell you. He is in his apartment and this guy's brother and sister come in and they say, oh, we'll get you the money. We'll get you the money soon. And he says, like, hell, you'll get me the money. And then he uh, grabs the woman. And he says, I'm going to sell this woman into sex slavery. Mm-hmm. And the brother tries to fight him over this and he accidentally jumps out the window. <laughs> he, a very hilarious shot. He does a flying karate kick right out the window and then he lands on the ground. His head exploded all over the pavement. Listen, it happens to the best of us, right? The old uh, karate kick out the window trick. I mean, it happened to poor old Bruce Lee and Marlowe. You know, <laughs> yeah. if it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. <laughs> so I, the interesting thing about Chiba in these movies is that he is like all the rough edges and the pure id of the idea of a martial arts hero. Like in The Street Fighter, there is no uh, real honor in the sense of like, you know, he's a good man. He's a heroic figure. Most of the time he's out for himself and he can get angry because someone betrayed him, but it will be delivered in the most violent and brutal ways possible. But, you know, you can understand a man like this because as a child, he watched his parents executed in front of him. Yes. So that, uh, you know, excuses some of the some of the <laughs> worst right. excesses of his behavior, <laughs> like selling a woman into slavery as punishment for not being paid. So, and he does, too. He, he, he does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the film goes on would you believe that the street fighter the character's name is terry siguri uh, is there any better name than terry <laughs> so terry siguri he's burned a lot of bridges over the years his bad behavior has made a lot of people upset so the yakuza are after him as is this guy that he sprung from death row who's very upset to see that his brother has fallen out the window and his sister has been sold into slavery so this guy goes after him Um, we're all here for the violence and let me tell you about some of the violence in the movie. And this is, you know, when I was a kid, when I was 14 years old watching this for the first time on my Walmart, Yeah, you could probably barely make out anything. It was like a broadcast from another dimension, which made everything even grimier than it actually was. Oh, but I, I still remember to this day, like watching this movie and seeing like the teeth getting knocked out, the eyeballs, like the guy gets punched in the face and then he spits out every tooth. Do you remember the x-ray when the, the fist comes down and like cracks the guy's skull? Well, it's one of the iconic yeah. moments. Sonny Chiba whacks a guy on the head and then you see the x-ray shot of his head as his like skull is getting fractured. Now, it's, it is awesome what happens in the movie, but it's also done in the cheapest way oh, possible. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like unless unless this sound like too hideous, the violence, like the gore is like bright red blood. And when you people know? get like their eyes knocked out, it's like ping pong ball eyes that fall <laughs> yeah. out and stuff like that. But like, Every time somebody gets hit in this movie, they like spit up blood or there's one like really memorable part where he punches the guy in the stomach and then he just like vomits in slow motion. I mean, I'm, I'm getting into spoiler territory here, but everyone who talks about this movie talks about these two scenes. There is the big climax where he tears out a guy's throat and there's the iconic moment when he... So you think this guy's bad for selling a woman into slavery. And yes, that is bad. But what if I told you that he also saves another woman from a would-be rapist by ripping off the guy's dick and you see that dick get ripped off too blood shoots everywhere holds it in front of the camera a little bloody stump (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) just the audience jumps to their feet and they applaud oh man could you imagine seeing this movie with an audience back back then you're getting mugged in the theater (laughs) you know (laughs) i'd love to see that movie with an audience now an unsuspecting one because i don't think that Chiba films get watched that much other than by a few loyal people. Yeah, I guess he's not he's not quite that iconic. Well, I think he's iconic as a presence, but I think that he doesn't have the cachet that Bruce Lee does. That's true, but I th- I do think he is like 
if you ask cult film fans who is an iconic Japanese movie star, aside from Toshiro Mifune, it's hard to think of a lot a lot of other ones that have the same kind of cult recognition. And I love his look too because he's like muscular, but he's not like only muscle like Bruce Lee was when you would see him in movies. He's got a l- little flab on it. That's true. I, I mean, Sonny Chiba's screen presence is so powerful in, I mean, most of the movies that he's in. Bruce Lee's screen presence is quite different. I mean, they're both these like really weird otherworldly fighters. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lee like switches from darkness to light very quickly. Like there are, there are times when he's like, a bit of a naive, a bit of a goofball, but then when he's fighting, all of a sudden the the dragon is unleashed. But in the Street Fighter, Sonny Chiba is this like really bad dude from beginning to end. And when he's fighting, it's more a difference of degree than kind. I would say though that as Chiba's career went on and the studios realized, oh, this is how we can exploit him. This is what people want from him. He became even more of a goofball as they tried to push, you know, the idea that Street Fighter had like these very uh, out there villains that he fights, like uh, a Zatoichi type who's blind and he like fights with a sword or, you know, there's just a series of like sub bosses that when you get to a film like Teruro Ishii's The Executioner, it's in pure Looney Tunes, like goofball territory. Yeah, okay. The Executioner is one that I watched a lot when I was a younger man because. Really? Well, because it was on. Breasts? <laughs> yeah, breasts are in it. Uh, yeah. It was on a DVD set that was available widely in North America called Kill Chiba. It was just a collection of Sonny Chiba movies that they had put out to cash in on Kill Bill. And so you got The Executioner, you got Bullet Train, a disaster film that Sonny Chiba is barely in yeah he plays the conductor on the bullet train that goes out of control but it's an all-star Irwin allen style disaster movie and the third movie on that set is golgo 13 kowloon assignment not uh not chiba's so, best day yeah. not so good but the executioner you know that was a fun movie for a kid the plot of it is that it's about a ragtag group of criminals who are secretly recruited by a former cop to do what the police can't do which is bust this international drug smuggling ring which is run by a very bad mob boss, a really sadistic guy, a real creep. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, Teruro Ishii is probably most famous for making action films, right? Oh, no. Looking at his filmography, you got Orgies of Edo, Inferno of Torture, Shogun's Joy of Torture. I mean, I may be joking, but these are like classics of the genre when it comes to Japanese series. Horrors of Malformed Men. Like, you can find all of these released by Arrow Video, and they look great. Yeah, so a lot of culty sex and violence horror erotica type stuff that's what Teruo Ishii does and The Executioner I mean so it's a great Sonny Chiba movie because it's got all the violence it's got a guy getting his eyes knocked out you know it's it's got a lot of sleazy stuff but it's also got a certain element of surrealism would be overstating the case cartoonishness cartoonishness yeah Yeah. like there's a scene where uh chiba gets in a fight on the street and some paint cans get knocked over so he like kicks a guy in the face and half the guy's face is yellow that he kicks him with his other foot and then half the guy's face is blue yeah i like the scene where one of the ragtag guys gets a big boner and everyone laughs (laughs) at his boner (laughs) i mean this is the stuff that like bruce lee if he had continued I don't think he would have ever made these kind of movies that this only comes from people like Ishii and Chiba being in a studio system where they have a type of movie they need to make. And essentially they are left to their own devices as long as they deliver it on time and on budget. Yeah. Like they do have a certain amount of freedom, but also they have a lot of constraints because what I learned this week from watching a interview with Chiba on the beautiful Shout Factory Blu-ray of The Street Fighter. Is he hates all of these movies that we're talking about. Yeah, so we said earlier that in contrast to Bruce Lee, it didn't seem like Sonny Chiba had a philosophy of the martial arts. Maybe that's the case in a movie like The Street Fighter, but he didn't want to make The Street Fighter. 
Sonny Chiba actually cares a great deal about the martial arts, cares a great deal about karate and does have a philosophy. You know, you can listen to him on that Blu-ray talk about karate as representing the spirit of the Japanese people. And, and you all can that. see that in really great movies like Karate Bullfighter, Karate Bear Fighter, Karate for Life. That is a trilogy where he plays an actual martial artist and it's more in tone in the way that he believes it should be portrayed on screen as opposed to the exploitative violence of a very bad man. Even though I love in that interview where he goes... Yeah, and then in the next Street Fighter film, they tried to make my character more heroic, which I also did not like. He didn't have any say in the evolution of the character. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it is a strange evolution, isn't it? Because like the whole point of the first Street Fighter is that he's a bad dude. He's a real piece of shit. Yeah, that's the whole point. But by the time you get to the third one, Street Fighter's Last Revenge, he's kind of a James Bond type character. (laughs) Yep. It's like, oh, this, you know what? He's been flanderized is a term I hear all the time where you like kind of accentuate certain parts that people like until all the edges are sanded off and they're not really a character. By the way, can I just say that Street Fighter's Last Revenge has one of my favorite scenes in any movie, which is his introductory scene where like he like somehow gets his way into the passenger seat of a moving car and he says to the guy, hi, I'm Terry Seguri, but some people know me as the Street Fighter. <laughs> I mean, it's not about him, but man, that Street Fighter theme song rocks so much every time it hits. And even in The Executioner, it has such an amazing, like, prog rock, like, score that just feels right. You know what else I love about The Executioner? It's just how tacky it is from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. All the 70s fashions, all the... It's just a, a shameless, ugly movie in spirit and tone. It also has, like, kind of tendrils of stuff like the Emmanuel movies where there are many Caucasian women that are getting naked and being humiliated in the picture. Yes, which adds to the kind of Again, I don't know if surrealism is the right word. The cartoonishness, the strangeness of the film, the dreamlike quality of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> the Jess Franco-esque-ness of it. Uh, but yeah, in that interview, Sonny Chiba says, I got this script for The Street Fighter. I immediately didn't like it. He says, and I'm literally quoting, extremely violent and cruel scenes are what I hate most in karate movies. It's like, uh-oh, you got the wrong franchise to make you popular. He made the most violent and cruel karate movie of all time. <laughs> That's right. And, and it is his defining role. And you know, it's funny, in that interview, he talks about how you know i don't i don't do karate movies anymore that's not that's not me and it's like what you're gonna do then yeah <laughs> <laughs> look at this filmography not much yeah yeah that's right so we watched another movie this week from 1975 a bit of a change of pace compared to the other ones called killing machine and this feels like something that would have been closer to chiba's heart where it's about like extolling the virtues of martial arts and being a good person <laughs> yep will's got it right <laughs> Where it's like, all right, when is he going to, like, fight somebody or, like, a bad guy or something like that? Only in the last 10 minutes when there's evil land developers show up. Great. Love it when land developers are taken down a peg. But it takes, like, 80 minutes to get there. And there is no killing in this movie called The Killing Machine. Yeah, that feels like a title that the American distributor put on. 100%. It. But, uh, like, the movie's fine, whatever. It's okay. Yeah, like... but it wouldn't be the first one I would recommend through no. all the ones that we're going through this list. I'll tell the folks about it a little bit more, though. It's a biopic of Doshan So, who is a real-life figure. He was a veteran of the Second World War, a spy, in fact, and, you know, heartbroken by Japan's surrender in the war. And in the aftermath of the defeat ended up founding his own school to teach Shaolin-style martial arts to the dispossessed Japanese people. This is a rather jingoistic movie. It positions So as sort of a champion of the Japanese spirit during a time when occupying forces and corrupt local politicians and gangsters are ruling over Japan with an iron fist and the people are too defeated to stand up. Well, well, this man stood up. And the film, as I said, is fine. 
there's some fun fighting in it, I guess. I've already forgotten it, even though I watched it today. Yeah, yeah same. Uh, Chiba's, Chiba's pretty good in it. I mean, I just love Chiba's look. Like, you talked about the presence of him and the way his, like, eyebrows are Eugene Levy in their size. And that a lot of the films he has, like, big mutton chops. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with this movie because, like, it is slick and beautiful in that Japanese studio system way. It's got a little style to it. It's got canted angles. Like, the editing is real snappy, but it's not going anywhere. Well, it's it's an 87-minute movie, and it feels a bit one-note. Like, a lot is crammed into that 87 minutes, and I, I don't quite... It's a little corny. I don't really buy it. I mean, it feels like a pale imitation of, like I mentioned, Karate Bear Fighter, which I think is a better version of, like, the story of a real-life martial and like the killing machine also goes through world war ii <laughs> he's korean so he also has some problems with like the japanese people that he runs into and in those movies does sony chiba actually fight a uh, bear or bull yep he does and also a man in a bear suit which oh mm, perfect so i mean we could go through a ton of sony chiba movies we didn't even touch upon like the lady street fighter films that he was involved with like co-starring in a bunch of them i really like those ones one too. that i've been meaning to check out is doberman cop uh, have you seen that one uh, yeah it's okay like it's one of the kind of yakuza films slash cop pictures that chiba made a lot especially with kinji fukasaku who they became like a real team when it got into like the 70s and the 80s they did a lot of like period samurai films with the craziest being samurai reincarnation where uh chiba plays like a dead samurai who gets a zombie army to take on his enemies and then we have films that like we just got to blaze through like his bruceploitation film soul of chiba so i saw that one and i can't remember anything about it the, in fact the one thing about it i don't think it has a lot to do with bruce lee no, except what, what electricity what, yes thing. that's what it has yeah. like there was there were all these reports that bruce lee towards the end of his life i don't know if this is actually true it is true oh, it is true okay. yeah because i heard some people who are like on set with him or knew him and near the end of his life he loved showing people this machine that it's like little suckers and it would like shock the muscles and develop them that's what it was supposed to do yeah okay so soul of chiba which has also been released as soul of bruce lee has chiba doing that shit for real i assume chiba's like i do all my own stunts like jackie chan which he says he's very good friends with yeah <laughs> yeah he says in the interview that he was the one who encouraged him to never get a stuntman but like uh chiba you know when he was getting on in his years in the 80s he also was the uh mentor of hiroyuki sanada who you can see in north america films now because uh, he's like the main go-to Japanese isn't that crazy yeah <laughs> it is it is uh and I should also say Chiba did have a brush with uh American stardom because he ap appeared in a film with Roddy Roddy Piper in Immortal Kombat it is not good around 1990 Chiba had a sort of personal professional waterloo when he sunk his vast fortune into a yellow fang it lost a fortune he lost his personal fortune but luckily he was able to sort of rebound first by appearing in a lot of direct-to-video american movies you mentioned the roddy piper one like he moved to la for a time and he was in uh iron eagle three that's right <laughs> not directed by Sidney j fury directed by the inferior john glenn <laughs> oh terrible terrible um I mean, I don't know how he managed in L.A. because I don't think he I don't think he speaks English. Uh, I, I think he does, because I remember hearing him on set of Kill Bill. He trained the actors. And so he knows like rudimentary English, but not enough to probably communicate that much. Do you remember there were rumors when he was up for a role in Die Another Day? No, I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense. Was that after or before Kill Bill? So it was before, although here in my favorite book ever written, Video Hound's Dragon, Asian Action and Cult Flicks, the bio ends saying, and, and he may face off against 007 in the next James Bond adventure. Uh, so to that, I say, 
uh, yes, that can still happen. I still want it to happen. <laughs> or The Misfits 2, Pierce Brosnan, <laughs> Sony Chiba. That seems more attainable. Yes, <laughs> it can still happen. I mean, Chiba also had a second life in Hong Kong films because he was the villain in the mega blockbuster The Storm Riders, which introduced CGI to the world of flying swordsmen. Yeah, one of the one of the big hits of that decade. And after Kill Bill, he unfortunately wasn't able to kind of turn that into too much of like a calling card. What are you he... talking about? Sushi Girl. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he also appeared in Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. But he's still active today. He's a beloved figure by those who know him. If I were to recommend one Sonny Chiba movie for people to start with, of course, it's The Street Fighter. And if I had to recommend one that wasn't in that kind of like super violent mold, it would have to be Karate Bullfighter. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Bailey Holden, and it goes, Expanding the canon. Hey, Justin and Will, big fan of the show. I feel like a central theme of the show is the expansion of the canon, giving previously disreputable genres, films, and filmmakers a new respect. Yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. You and me, you know what we like to do? We like to talk about things that interest us. Yes, and we want other people to be interested in it too, though. Exactly. And if that's high art, if that's low art, if that's uh, medium art... Uh, mm-hmm. then we're all for it. I've heard that in Mark Cousins' new film, The Story of Film, A okay, New Generation. Okay, first of all, no thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, do you what do you mean? Will? I can't do Mark Cousins' voice, but it's probably something like this. Something you... something innovative. <sighs> that just played at con. he refers to internet creators such as the Nostalgia Critic. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what are your guys' thoughts on expanding the canon into internet content? Is there any internet-specific content you find especially interesting? First of all, did Mark Cousins talk in that movie about to boldly flee? <laughs> what is or, that? Kick Assia. Those are those movies that the Nostalgia Critic made with all, with all of his with all of his people when like the sets of them were famously like very poorly run with a lot of injuries. And I have never watched a video of the Nostalgia Critic. This completely passed me by. Okay, I'm gonna send you a link because like in all seriousness, you should know about. I, I know of him because co-host of No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, uh, April Atmansky, had a photo of him autographed on her fridge a decade ago. Oh, my God. Which she swears is now gone. She's, like, ashamed of this period of so her life. So I'm, I'm saying you don't need to know about the Nostalgia Critic. Don't watch his videos. They're yeah. stupid. You should just know about, like what happened on the set of these movies and like they were they were his Fitzcarraldo. I love these internet people who then go make a movie and they're like, oh, it's easy to make fun of them, a little bit harder to actually do them, like the angry video game nerd movie yeah. that took like 10 years or something like okay, that. Okay, I'll just make. tell you one famous fact about the making of Kick-Assia. It's like, they shot it in this place in the desert in Nevada, and they had like 30, 40 of these content creators that they'd accumulated all there in the desert. <laughs> they made a 90-minute movie. And by the way, the later ones, the last one he made was three and a half hours, okay? Oh, my but God. But all of them had a four or five-day shooting schedule. <laughs> Four or five Okay, days. you've made movies. <laughs> yes. I mean, listen, this sounds like the Edgar G. Elmer of our times, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but in the making of Kick-Assia, and this is so far away from what the letter writer cares about, in the making of Kick-Assia... People need to know Will has an unhealthy obsession with these internet celebrities. Like, <laughs> he knows so much about them. On the making of Kick-Assia, one of the people on the set said, hey, uh, are there going to be any craft services? And Doug Walker like laughs. He's like... Pfft. Craft services. What are you talking Is about? Is that the name of the nostalgia critic? Oh, yeah. yeah. The, okay, excuse me. The nostalgia critic laughs at her and says, craft services? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, she's like, you need you need craft services if you're making a movie. It's like student films have craft services. And he's laughing. And then another guy says, no, no, she she's right, dude. You need, you need water on the set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good so definitely that's coming to a patreon episode near us uh, right 
You and me, we're going to watch To Boldly Flee. Okay, I'm very excited. I feel like, I guess he'll show those movie makers. that he Does he make fun of movies? I don't even know what yeah, his deal yeah. is. Yeah, so his whole thing was like, he keeps getting booted from YouTube because he keeps showing too many clips from the movies. I don't want to watch any clips from the movies. Yeah, boot him off. I mean, he argues that it's fair use, mm. but he shows like a third of the movie, basically. <laughs> okay. Does he make like wisecracks over it? Like, what is the... Yeah, he does wisecracks. It's like John Stewart talking about the news, basically. Okay. It's that kind of thing. Okay, what was the question of the letter? Does internet content have value? Now, what threw me off there was the Or fact does it have value in the context of film history? Should yeah. it be incorporated into film history? What I'm not quite sure about the question is, are they asking about, like, movie critics, internet-wise, or internet content? If it's internet content, yes, it definitely has I think they're place. talking about internet content. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the same thing as another branch of television, right? Like, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I definitely think of... Okay, let's use the nostalgia critic as an example. I think of that as, like, basically a TV show. Mm-hmm. Basically the same thing. In fact... Of course. I think it's on IMDb as a TV show. And is that the you same? You know he added every one of the episodes <laughs> himself. And is that the same as a movie? Um, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. What is a movie? David Lynch's Twin Peaks The Return? Uh, certainly there are a lot of things on the internet like, okay, this is a really out of date example, but you remember that thing Wizard People Dear Reader? Yes. This guy took all of Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter movie, and he just muted the dialogue and he overdubbed his commentary of just describing what's happening Very as funny. this like crazy character. Yes. <laughs> Extremely funny. And that like, it's interesting that something like that can exist and it sort of is a movie. I'm both for the explosion of film history to incorporate stuff like that but i am also afraid of it because there's so much and i don't know how to wrap my head around i think that someone can't dismiss it because it oftentimes had such an impact like wizard people dear reader was a huge thing like millions of people watch it it is undeniably important it's just the internet even though it's existed for decades still gets talked about as something that doesn't really matter that it's disposable when that is not true that is not the nature of entertainment people consume that stuff in the same way they consume movies and they talk about it the same way it still makes an impact now does it move at hyper speed and people are off this one thing into something else yes but it's still there and people will still remember yeah so i think the only reason not to consider all that stuff part of film history is just the fact that it's so vast and so hard to catalog Mm -hmm. and that's not a reason yes everybody jump up on the way back machine Let's go back to stickdeath.com. Our next letter is from John Paul McKenna, and he goes, Hello. The interview with Steve Wang was amazing, and rewatching Drive has made me want to go back to Crying Freeman and Brotherhood of the Wolf, both of which I absolutely loved as a callow youth. In your opinion, as Mark DeCascos' scholars, I think I'll take that label. Uh, yeah, that's Justin. <laughs> Do they hold up, or should I just cherish the memory? Thanks, JP. I'll handle this question. I'm a big Christopher Gaunt fan. He is like the French equivalent of Quentin Tarantino, except that he will actually try to execute his visions of like Hong Kong cinema and giallos in movie form. Is he full of himself? Yes, he is. Is, but I got to respect the man. And I really love Brotherhood of the Wolf. I think Crying Freeman is a great attempt that doesn't really work as a film that much, but he was doing something in the DTV realm that nobody else was, which is trying to create something arty. And yep, so if people are interested in like manga to screen adaptations, I would definitely check that out. And he did mention my interview with Steve Wang, which if people haven't listened to it, because they just looked through the feed and like, I don't know who this is. And they kept going, Listen to it because it is great. He is a director of a bunch of movies like Guyver 2 and Drive. He is also the special effects artist who designed the original Predator and worked on Beetlejuice, sculpted the suit in Batman Returns. <laughs> like, he has been through movie history forever. Even though that when I did the interview, my goal was 
I just want to talk about the films you directed because nobody ever asked you about that. Do you want to know what it is like directing an episode of Power Rangers Lost Galaxy? Well, Steve Wang will answer that question. So check out the interview that I did with him. And thank you very much for that question. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, we're sticking in the grindhouse on the Patreon. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not in the art house this week. We are in its polar opposite, the grindhouse. And we are talking about one of the famous, not famous, one of the uh, prolific Grindhouse Distributors, 21st Century Distribution Company. So is that just an excuse for me and Will to go through the list of titles that they released and riff on them? Of course it is. It is riff session. We're talking about Italian cannibal movies. We're talking about exploitation movies. We're talking about all our favorite subjects. We're t- we have some spicy words about the director, Graydon Clark. <laughs> That's right. I hope he's not listening. <laughs> so you can check that out on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Only $5 a month. You get that episode and our entire back content. And also, speaking of money, I want your money because I'm crowdfunding something for Gold Ninja Video. This is huge. Gold Ninja Video, you're all fans. You've all got some of Gold Ninja Video's classic releases. When Justin started it, the idea was to be releasing public domain movies in glorious special editions with a ton of extra features. The Criterion Collection of Alpha Videos. Someone wrote a comment that I boast that we have the worst transfers possible. That is not true. I try to get the best transfer possible. But like the best best of the worst. Of the worst, yes. Because (laughs) I could not afford to do new scans of these films, find 35mm prints, scan them, put them on Blu-ray. It just wasn't cost effective based on how many we were selling, which was always way more than I ever expected, but not enough to sustain that. So what I'm doing is a crowd funding campaign on Indiegogo to raise some funds to do some scans of movies that I have access to, that the directors have given me permission, that I have the elements, and that I can put out on Blu-ray. So there are three movies, one of which is not being announced, but what is the one that you're not announcing? So the one I'm not announcing is a Taiwanese film, and it's a really wild one. And the reason I don't want to announce it is I always like to have something secret. You know, it's like, well, what is this thing? Like with Golden Ninja Video, if people don't know, there's always a bonus feature hidden on the disc. And I think it's fun to people that buy stuff regularly be like, well, what is it? I can't wait to get it and check it on the disc. But folks, it's a Taiwanese action movie. That's, I told Will what it is. That's what you need to know. Yes. Okay. Trust Justin on this. The two movies you have announced are solid gold classics and neglected movies, movies that you will love if you haven't seen them already. If you have seen them, you know you love them, and they need to be preserved. No one else is going to do this. I mean, I kept waiting for someone to do it, especially the first one, Freaky Farley, which, listen, you listen to this podcast, you know more media. me and Will wrote a book on it, wrote the book. That's right. <laughs> I remember asking the guys when I was doing Local Legends, uh, could you do Freaky Farley? Unfortunately, the problem is they don't have a print of Freaky Farley. When they shot the film, they developed the picture, and then they got a standard definition digital transfer, and that's what the director, Charlie Roxburgh, edited. So the only edited version of the film is in standard def. So what we're doing is we're going to scan the entire negative of the film, every take that was done. And Charlie Roxburgh is going to recut the film off of the version that currently exists. He actually found the sound files that still exist. So he can actually like make a surround mix, also a 2.0. It'll be exactly like the film was, but better in every way. And Freaky Farley shot in 16 millimeter. It looks like it was in the 80s. I cannot wait to see it in high definition. All that grain right in our face. And the other one is a solid gold classic. Yes, it is a Canadian film called Skip Tracer, unrelated to the Jackie Chan, Rennie Harlan film. (laughs) They were there first. And it's about a 
kind of grizzled repo man skip tracer is actually slang for repo man and it's about his kind of crisis of conscience it can be described as kind of like taxi driver-esque where it's like a guy's going through the mean streets of vancouver in the late 70s dealing with his lot in life and figuring out what he needs to do it's great usually when but it's a thriller too yeah it's a thriller like it's not like a heavy drama or anything like that it's punchy it's super fun usually when canadian cinema is brought up by someone who knows its history Skip Tracer is on that list. And insanely, it has never gotten a DVD release. It's only ever existed on VHS. I saw the movie when Justin played it at the Royal Cinema a few years back. It's a great film. So those are the two films that are announced. I'm super excited about it. I don't want to go through all the perks that I have. I mean, no one has jumped on yet. The fact that you can buy naming rights of a character in a modern media movie, which I think is very exciting. As of when we say it, though, there were two spots open to guest on the Important Cinema Club podcast. There is one spot open now because someone grabbed one. All right. So we already have one guest who's coming on who gets to pick a topic and the other one. It can be anything. It could be you. Will we finally do that episode on the thumb movies? Oh man, I hope so. Like literally you can pick anything. Yeah, you can pick anything. Yeah. We'll do it. And and you get to be here. You get to be the third person in the room. But you may not want to. I know some people are like, I don't know. I would be too intimidated. If you don't want to, that's fine. But like the option there is open for you to be there. Me and Will are very nice. We're good person. guys. Yeah. yeah. But most importantly... I think the main perk is that the entire out-of-print back catalog of Gold Ninja Video is back. It's now available. You can get it as a perk on the crowdfunding campaign. And I was shocked about how many had gone out of print. Bella Lugosi meets a broken gorilla. I'm so proud of that disc. Do you want to hear the entire Sammy Petrillo prank album? It's on there. You will find it nowhere else. And just know when you're listening to it, me and Will are in the room (laughs) trying not to laugh. It was not hard because <laughs> we, <did> <laughs> we had to record it with a mic that we were standing beside. Uh, we also have Dragon Lives Again, our first release, Bruce Lee Goes to Hell, uh, Kung Fu Zombie, Thundering Mantis, even some Poverty Row stuff like our Edgar G. Ulmer disc, Bluebeard, which is a great package filled with deep Ulmer cuts, or Strangler of the Swamp, the Frank Wisbar dedicated mm, disc. <laughs> I, yes. love, I love putting that together. We have so many Wisbar heads out there <laughs> yeah, who, who right. picked that one up. Uh, I mean, that one has a crazy hidden feature. All these discs that I mentioned all have hidden features it's a triple bill when you pick it up and that's the way that it has to be purchased on the website you got to pick three at a time just because of the way indiegogo was set up and also i need your sweet dollars to do this stuff because it was a little bit intimidating when i realized how much i would have to set the goal at to do these three films that i wanted to do i didn't pick one because i wanted to get three different flavors of like what is available like you get a fancy martial arts movie you get an indie film in freaky farley and you also get a, you know a canadian cult classic and so that's all available and there's 30 days to get in there and participate you can also get a subscription to the next six titles that are coming out and i should also say that like this could not be done without the people listening to this like me and willie joked about like what if we started our own blu-ray label (laughs) remember we wanted to start with detour that's how long ago it was (laughs) (laughs) we're able to do it and people bought it and it kind of bowled me over and people have continued buying it and writing nice things about it and it has literally been a dream come true to be able to do this and keep doing this because there's fans out there who enjoy it and recommend it to other people and the idea of being able to share these movies being like wouldn't it be great if we could show bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla to other people mm-hmm. and also contextualize it yeah. that it feels like they're hanging out with friends that's that's the dream yeah and know? we're able to do that put it out in the world and people just enjoying it so i just like to say thank you to all the fans 
we would not be doing this or talking about this if it wasn't for you guys. And if you can, just share it out into the world. I know that a lot of you do that already, and I appreciate it every time I see it on Twitter or even on Reddit. But if you could make like a concentrated effort to get it out there, just let people know what it is, uh, it would mean the world to me. Because we are 60% into the funds raise at this point, but I'm still nervous. I'm like, I'm not going to make it all the way to the hundred. So anyone who could spread the word, it would be very much appreciated. So what are we doing next week? Will? Oh, um, let's say Noah Baumbach. All right. Noah Baumbach. Uh, you know, I, anytime I bring him up, you always kind of make a face like you're like, eh, cause you're not a big fan, right? I mean, I like him. <laughs> I don't dislike him. You like squid and the whale. Yeah. That's the one that I like the most. Okay. Um, and it's kind of the only one that I'm really enthusiastic about, to be mm. honest, but he's not, I don't think he's made a movie I dislike. Mm, just none that you felt that passionate about. Yeah. But Hey, maybe that'll change this week. So let's do his first film, Kicking and Screaming, the classic Will Ferrell comedy. <laughs> let's do the one that he made that stars Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> oh, uh, Highball? No, oh, you didn't correct me, Will. Kicking and Screaming it does not feature Will Ferrell. These two movies have the same name. <laughs> Yo, you're right. I do remember that. I was just so eager to get to the Bogdanovich <laughs> factoid. <laughs> Highball, the film that Noah Baumbach, I think that he took his name off. Yeah, he definitely took his name off. And then let's watch, why not Greenberg, the Ben Stiller one that he made. Sounds good. Okay, so that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name's Dustin Nicklou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Oh, the sun is hot. We're on the beach. It's the Cannes Film Festival, baby. That's right. We are broadcasting from the French Riviera. And I'm reading Roger Ebert's classic book. I don't remember what the title was. Two Weeks in the Midday Sun. Where he talked about his experience uh, going to Cannes. And like I do... <laughs> I already know the story you can't tell. <laughs> And how the climax of the book is him being waved in by director Henry Jaglum into a sold out screening of a Henry Jaglum movie. So that is the funniest story in that book, because Roger Ebert writes that he's at multiple Cannes film festivals. He has tried to get into the new Henry Jaglum film and has never been able to because it's been sold out. And Ebert is not kidding. And what's funny about this is if you hear the name Henry Jaglum, you're like, who? Yep. That is a correct response. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He is the guy that um, published that real shady book of the taped conversations he had with his friend Orson Welles. The <laughs> ones that he very obviously recorded without Orson Welles's consent. And there's such rambling all over the place, like transcripts. And he also directed many, many personal, very self-indulgent films. Personal. That's <laughs> so that's right. We're gonna Boring. Get, we're going to get a Henry Jaglum episode coming soon. I actually would love to do a Henry Jaglum episode. We should do it. So what is a hot news, the hot juice that's going on at the Cannes Film Festival right now, Will? Well, you know, I've really felt myself being too online lately because whenever I check the old Twitter feed, which I'm doing too much right now, mm-hmm. I always see, like every day there's a new a new doofus at Cannes who like says something. Isn't and... the thing though is like, if they are at Cannes, and they're, you know, film critics that are doing it, I instantly dismiss them because I'm like, how do they afford to go there? They're probably not working for any, like, organizations. No, no newspaper can... is paying no. for your ticket anymore. So they're paying for themselves. And to that, I say, screw them. <laughs> well, okay, first of all, if you have the money to go to con, yeah. so that says something about you. Mm-hmm. But what also says something about you is that you choose to spend that money to go watch the new Wes Anderson movie that'll be <laughs> that'll be out in two, two months. Weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, see it in another country. Where somebody's like, boo, in the audience. Yeah, I mean, why not instead go to the French Riviera and have a beach vacation? But what about the new uh, Paul Verhoeven movie, his sexy nun picture? Well, I mean, obviously I'm looking forward to that. But you wouldn't go to the French Riviera era to you know 
see the picture at a premiere, would you? Unless, you know, a news organization wants to contact us and pay our way. I'd love to. I mean... Uh, yeah, we'll be the doofuses that are there. We just don't want to pay for it. Yeah, ex- and I don't think that's so wrong. So what uh, online film Twitter troll has been uh, stirring up stuff these days? Okay, listen, I don't I don't want to get into this too much, but but what I will say is that... I, <laughs> Before I, we start recording, Will's like, let me tell you what's going yeah. on. <laughs> There, there was a guy on Twitter today. Don't say his name. Doesn't I'm not. Matter. I'm not going to say his name. But like, he was. He was talking about how frustrated he is that a lot of critics like get to get screeners for movies mm-hmm. before the Cannes Film Festival, and, and he's like, you know, like going going to Cannes, it should be like that's like getting a screener to climb Mount Everest. This guy sucks. <laughs> like he sucks so much. Nice Will had to explain to me who he was, and I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. I am so like in my own bubble. <laughs> like I, words muted, people unfollowed. Like I see almost nothing. Do you you know, like Marvel, DC, I have that all muted on Twitter. I'd see none of that. There's part of me that is jealous of that. And then there's part of me that's like, ah, but I want to know what's happening in the world. But it doesn't wanna... make you happy. If anything, it just makes you more miserable. Ah, uh, you're correct. <laughs> yeah, so... I don't want to know about this stupid controversy. I don't know about these fucking doofuses who, <laughs> who are, who are sitting there in the French Riviera, not on the beach. Mm-hmm. And they're fighting with people on Twitter because of their bad take. But like I've said before that when you're that rich, it's the slightest, you know, a poke will get you angry because you have everything. And for anyone to say that you're either not worthy or to have it easier than you for some baffling reason, you need to get angry at it. My them. feeling is that if you're a critic of any kind, people should be able to say whatever they want about you. Well, except for me. Please only say nice things. Guys like us, we're very sensitive. <laughs> yes. but, but publicly, we have to accept it. We have to have a stern, upper, stiff upper lip, and people can say whatever they want. Was it the idea that because you're criticizing stuff that you can be criticized yourself as well? Exactly. That, that's how I feel. If you're out there, if you're out there being a critic, like if somebody says mean ad hominem things about you, you have to take that. And and if you, you shouldn't be arguing with them. No, you should this not pers- be arguing exactly. with them. They should be screaming in a void. Exactly. And yeah. you, you should just, you should just take it. In fact, you should not look at it. But those people, that's all, like, that's what they live for. Because film criticism, there's no celebrity critics anymore uh, lights camera jackson Other than <laughs> you think he's gonna wake up one day and he's like wait a minute are they making fun of me he's gonna wake up and he real he'll realize i'm not a kid anymore <laughs> uh no i think he's the peter pan of our generation that's never gonna happen you're you're right he kind of is isn't he i'm always baffled when i see people retweeting like camera jackson because only people like will sloan is keeping him alive <laughs> like that's it when okay because yeah those people are my fellow travelers isn't he working for like the Roger Ebert organization or something like that okay this is a baffling thing he and Chaz Ebert are apparently developing a TV show together and he was on the Ebert Presents show mm. and as like a little like kid like kid, you know he's novelty cute. critic yeah. but Chaz Ebert you know what what is she thinking I'm sorry <laughs> like <laughs> you guys give him power they look at those numbers they're like what people retweeting him look at all these mentions let's I'm, give him a show i'm comfortable with that i'm fine with it. i i first of all i have nothing against lights camera jackson i don't think he's a great critic or anything but yeah. it's like he's no he's no worse than a lot of people well, what about um who's the guy who does the puns all the time the gene crit- shallot why not give him a new show <laughs> is he even alive <laughs> I don't know. When are we going to do our Patreon episode on Gene Shallot? Oh, we should. We just riff on clips of Gene Shallot. Anyway, that was our coverage of the Cannes Film Festival. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Mentioned one movie. (laughs) And now we bid you adieu as we go to the beach and hang out.